Hey, it's Chrissy. And Carrie. And we are Status Macabre. That almost started off rough. It did. We saved it, though. I feel (laughs) you saved it. I didn't save it. I'm done saving things today. So it is a Friday night. A Friday night. What the fuck? I know I was gonna say. Uh, we, we just literally old. had a conversation about uh, how we don't have any friends. I know. And now we're like, it's Friday, Friday night. night. <laughs> what do you want to do? Let's go record. Yeah, we're awesome. Oh yay! Woo. That's okay. It happens. <laughs> so we've got a good episode. Well, yeah, and I, I'm back from Colorado. And guess what? She got in Colorado, guys. And I am... I, it sucked, man. Yeah. Dude, I was sick. The altitude. I wanted to vomit the entire time I was there. I know. Like three drinks, I was done. I think... It was horrible. Yeah. I think when I went with my brother to the Grand Canyon, we were at something, I don't even know, like five, five, seven thousand feet. I don't know. I got nothing. Oh, and I was... You were sick. Oh, it was terrible. I, it was terrible. I think my yep. resting heart rate was 130 something beats a minute. Holy shit! You could lose weight that way. I guess. I mean, maybe. oh god. <laughs> no, it was. I felt like I was on a boat the entire time, yeah. and it was like rocking, and I just wanted to vomit. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sure people think I'm a complete wuss. No, it's and, a thing. Like it happens. But yeah, to you guys that live up in the mountains, or kudos like that. Yeah. Holy shit! I could not hang. We yeah. went to. Like, dicked around in, like, Boulder or whatever, and that was kind of cool. Um, but uh, I, it was even higher, because it's right there. I mean, the mountain's, like, right there in front of you. So, it just, yeah, I got, I did not feel good at all um, and feel like and it takes people that can. Yeah, it's going to take a while to recover. I don't mean, like, oh. weeks or months, but it can take several days. No, but I felt a change. You know, well, I was on a plane, so that... You know, probably didn't help it, but you know, landing and being back at sea level, I didn't have the severe rocking. Yeah, it just I couldn't believe. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's the thin air, whatever. I mean, it was a cool city. Don't get me wrong. Um, the weather was great. It was really cool, but um, I didn't get to see a whole lot. But it was, it was, it was kind of neat. I've never seen the Lake Mountains coming out yet like that. Yeah, um, definitely different than our mountains, but. So I wonder if they're similar to the, the like the uh, the ones in Arizona. Probably not. Um, I don't. Uh, the mountains out there, like it, they were, they beautiful. were gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. and, and these right, were pretty, they, but it was ours are different. Yeah, well, they're. I mean, they're more like hills. <laughs> well, I mean, if you go up to Green, <gasps> and ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we just had a party foul. Oh my god! I'm totally not cutting that out. <laughs> At all, period. Carrie, I don't know what she was doing with her mimosa, but... It is all over the place. It is now all over the place. Hold, please, while I help this idiot clean it up. I got it. Okay, and we're back. (laughs) All clean. All clean. Some notes are ruined. I think I have a fingernail file that I have to throw away now, but... Yes, and I dropped a screw on my toe. dropped a screw on her toe. I don't know how that happened, but anyway, back to what I was saying. Good times. Um, anyway, so I'm back from, I, you know, another world, it feels like. Yeah. Um, it's good to be home. And I did a lot of research 
on our on this episode and there were times that I had to close my eyes after reading really because this one guys is a doozy and I, I guess before we get started one more like quick yeah do you have anything no all right well other than hey, I feel like guys, we're in a meeting listener listener discretion, discretion is strongly advised yeah you don't want children listening to this mess and some adults don't have the mental capacity to, to handle oh yeah this. i don't want any emails about how vulgar this is because it's it's gonna be pretty effing nasty all right so all right this week's episode is about uh albert fish and the case that ultimately um caused his death um, by execution. Um, he is usually referred to as the boogeyman. Um, he's got several names, actually. Uh, the Brooklyn Vampire, Werewolf of Wisteria, uh, the Gray Man, and then uh, Moon Maniac, which I didn't know until later, yeah. like kind of what that meant. And there's a, hmm, uh, just a, a statement in here about how he's acts a certain way during the full moon. He craves something. So, um, and I don't want to give it all away, but, you know, um, this guy has been one of my top, like, serial killer, like, just obsessions because he's just so freaking weird. And if you go look him up, um, it's Albert Fish, Albert H. Fish, and uh, he looks like a very decrepit old man. And he looks like a homeless, he does. decrepit old man. And what you're looking at when you look at him is it's either pure evil uh, or in what I think is, is more of serious, serious mental illness. And he has some psychosis, dementia. Um, he's He's got a lot there going on. So uh, his real name is Hamilton Howard Fish. And he was born on May 19th, which is creepy because that's my daughter's birthday, but um, May 19th, 1870, to Randall and Ellen Fish in Washington, D.C. He was named, actually, after his ancestor, who had been the governor of New York in the early 1850s. And later, during the eight years of the Grant administration, he was the U.S. Secretary of State. Damn. So he's... Yeah, he's filling some big shoes, um, which we'll quickly see he he can't. So, um, but there's a ton of information. There's not a ton of information about Fish's background, um, you know, as, as a child. But what we know, so we know he had two brothers, um, Edwin and Walter, and a sister named Annie. He adopted the name Albert after his younger brother who died of some kind of brain disease. And his reasoning for adopting the name Albert was because kids teased him by calling him ham and eggs. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that, I don't so know. So Albert sounded better than Hamilton, but where did, or Howard, or but how did kids come up with ham and eggs? I don't know. Out of Hamilton. <laughs> well, I don't know. Ham, right? Maybe. I get, but how stupid is that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's I mean, that's what kids are. Stupid. I know, but I would have just went with it. Just oh, yeah. Ham and eggs. Call oh, me yeah, ham. funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, so um, his father, Randall, was 43 years older than his mother. Oh, jeez. 
of the creepiest shit you've heard. I mean, 20, okay, right? I, I, but That's pushing the limit. 40? But three? I, right? Like, yeah. 10 pushes the limits. Yeah, I think so. 15? And then you've got everything else. This dude was 43 years older. Yeah, no. I mean, he. I could have been Maybe a grandma he by the Maybe time. he was loaded, right? No, he wasn't. Oh, right, well, then I got nothing. Yeah, so anyway, he was 75 when Albert was born. And then he died of a heart attack when um, he was like five or something. Oh, God. Yeah, he was originally a riverboat captain and later became a fertilizer ma- manufacturer. So I'm not going to say that he wasn't well off. I mean, he wasn't. He didn't have a lot of money, but they were established, right? And okay. they were a good what you know you would call back then a good family. Mm-hmm. Um, Albert's mother, though, suffered from mental illness and often had visual hallucinations. Um, in fact, there was a lot of mental illness in his family. His uncle suffered from mania. His brother was sent to a mental facility, and his sister also suffered from some kind of mental affliction. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you've got a long line of people suffering with mental things. Well, when Albert's father died, his mother sent him to live at St. John's Orphanage in uh, Washington, where he had basically was beaten, tortured on a daily basis. Oh, wow. I know, which, you know. He, though internalized that and eventually became aroused by the beatings and flogging. So, you know, you can see where that kind of took a turn. Yeah. Um, you either, I don't know, have some kind of, uh, well, I guess it's all mental, right? You become, you know, you're physically affected along with mentally, but, um, in 19, I'm sorry, 1880, um, his mother secured a government job and was able to get her son back from the orphanage. So I guess she dropped him off because she couldn't afford it. Exactly. Okay. I mean, they had, yeah. So she had, you know, the other bro- the two brothers and the daughter. So there were four, I mean, essentially four yeah. children. So, um, and so, yeah, once she got a government job, she was able to get her son back and, unfortunately though, Albert didn't receive any formal education the entire time. Um, he was a child, but he did learn to read and write to some degree. Um, at, by the age of 11, Albert was still wetting the bed and was said to be very high strung and inordinately um, very sensitive child. Yeah. So, and that's from a, abuse right there. I, well, agreed, but we also know Abandonment from, issues. you know, the breakdown of a, you know, serial killer bedwetting is one of the. You know, I I won't say system assist symptoms, but characteristics. Yeah, because they all have mental illnesses. Is, well, I don't know if it's all mental illness. I mean, okay, we can debate this later. But you know, we've had this discussion as to whether or not you know, are you evil inherently, or like just born with that, or you learned it. Well, it's kind of like I say. I think everybody has a little bit of narcissism in them, so I mm. think everybody's a little crazy. Definitely, everybody's got a little bit of narcissism. If they don't, then I mean, you, you have can, no ego, you or can, everybody can be diagnosed with something. Oh, I'm sure everybody can be diagnosed with something. I can diagnose my, myself right now. You can't tell me anybody you've, whether you think they were born evil or not. There's something oh, yeah. mental associated with that, from my perspective. Oh, that's fair. I mean, I guess that's it's very broad spectrum that you're. I mean. Yeah. Putting that on, but no, I, I mean, I, I mean, there's something wrong with everybody. I'm definitely on the spectrum. Hell, I could be a fucking 
I should be a serial killer. The difference between me not being a serial killer and me being a serial killer is... You don't want to clean up the mess? I, no, I don't want to suffer consequences. I don't want to get caught. <laughs> oh, yeah, now, that now, too. Now, let, let that sink in, which means... Oh, if there was but a you would be okay, me, right? Because exactly. I was going to say the reason why I'm not is that I just... I don't want to deal with the drama of these people like getting upset and agonizing. And I don't know that I could do that. I... Oh, God. There's more than one way to kill people. You, you and I to need to... At them. I love you. <laughs> All right. So let's let's back up. So anyway, so when Albert is 12, he develops a relationship with a telegraph boy. Because, yeah, remember, we're like in the 1900s, yeah. early. So telegraph boy, who teaches him all about the paraphili- paraphilic practices of urolangia. I guess that's how you pronounce that. And coprophilia. Fugia, which um, the Euro is drinking urine and the uh, Capro is eating poop. Mm. That's gross. Isn't it? He also started visiting public uh, baths to watch boys undress and he took up the practice of writing salacious and vulgar letters to women, which we'll get into a little bit later. But he'd look under the classified ads, um, get a woman's address, and then send her, like, this nasty-ass letter. Which, I guess it's, you know, today's version of, well, maybe, no, 90s version of, you know, 80s, 1800s version of, you know, crank calls. Yeah. I mean, how many people did we crank call? Yeah. I mean, nowadays... Send them letters. I know. I was going to say, now we should bring that back. Right? (laughs) I don't, I mean, there's for, something to be said about everything's so, so, so instant gratification now. There's exactly. something to be said about the chase. I'm sorry, because now when you call a cell, it's going to come up with the phone number. And even if you call a landline, nine times out of ten, it's going to come up with yep. the landline number. And, you know, kids back, like, who are, I don't know, that didn't have cell phones, they just don't understand or can appreciate. Just the yeah. awesomeness of picking up the phone and go, oh, hello, how are you? And hanging up. And yep. then hanging the fuck up. <laughs> I was like, every time you had a friend come over, you'd, you'd get the phone book. Yep. Let's dial this number. Do you know, like my brother used to crank call me because we used to have a landline. And when I or lived in an apartment, because I it was, you know, what, early, late 90s, 1998, 1999, call this is the cops. I mean, I don't know yeah. he'd say something stupid, but yeah, didn't know it was him. I mean, God, we need to bring that shit back <laughs> for real. Well, anyway, so Albert was reportedly a homosexual. Women were just a beard and a substitute for his real desires, which were for younger boys. Hmm. Yeah. His age preference being for boys of about five mm-hmm, to 14 or 16. <laughs> Which is, I got nothing. That's just fucking disgusting. So he's a pedophile. Yeah. I mean, honestly, let's just put a fucking label on it. Well, and that's when he was, yeah, 17 or 12, right? How old was he when this was happening? Um, so, I mean, this, this is going, I mean. It's been teenage years, right? I was going to say, but this is, this is all, exactly, 100%. So when he was about 17, Albert, Albert, Albert held a job as a a potato. (laughs) Guys. 
stupid. <laughs> anyway, he's ha- he held a job as a painter. He worked at the YMCA, um, residential homes, any kind of home where there were children or where he thought he could get children. In those places, he made his headquarters the basement or cellar. He'd wear overalls over his nude body so he could be naked in a quick second. And also, if his victims saw him on the street in regular clothes, they wouldn't be like, oh, that's Albert with the naked (laughs) overalls. I mean, the only thing I keep picturing is, remember that Chris Farley skit uh, on Saturday Night Live with him and Patrick Swayze? And they're they're doing the stripper dance. And all I can think about is, you know, this nasty dude in underalls with, like, or overalls, overalls with no clothes on, and he's on the stage, like, you know, picturing <laughs> him in, in naked. Just <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's it's kind of gross, to be honest with you. But um, a doctor, after talking with Albert in prison, believed that he had raped at least 100 children mm. while he was working as a painter. So after a particularly particularly brutal episode, Fish would bounce to another state. So after he molests some kid, he would then go and, and that time, pack up and yeah, go. And that time they probably didn't even kid probably never even said anything about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there you have no idea. Um, and and it's sad because yeah, you're in a time period where this was something that you just did not discuss. Yeah. Well, he had been in no less than 23 states, from New York to Montana, and in every state, he had raped at least one child. Mm. In Albert's later teens, he had been a homosexual prostitute. He'd stayed on corners and went with other men for money. He also traveled to Brussels, where he visited brothels, specializing in flagellation and other sadomasochist acts and practice oral perversions on the rectums of men and women. Um, And he was also very interested in anything to do with urine, um, which I find utterly disgusting. But I mean, if that's what, you know, two consensual adults go at it, whatever floats your boat. Um, But when he comes back to America after, you know, learning and practicing all these fetishes, he, tries them on his child victims because the ultimate goal was not to have sex with, with the child. It was honestly just to inflict pain. Fish liked to hear the cries of his victims and he wanted the pleading. He wanted that suffering. Well, fish a lot of times targeted children with lower classes from lower classes, rather. Sorry. He selected black children because reportedly, you know, the cops didn't seem to pay much attention if they were hurting or missing and just didn't care. Oh, wow. And we've seen this before in a lot of cases. I mean, think about the Atlanta child, you know, killer. Mm-hmm. You've got multiple well, um, serial killers who target, yeah. you know, minorities because they're just neglected from a you know, uh, I guess law enforcement perspective, which is really sad, but a lot of his um, victims were black. Um, Albert was supposedly uh, confessed to keeping a black boy in a shack by the Potomac River in Washington for several weeks. He undressed the boy, took his clothes, kept him captive. And he wanted to kill the boy, but it never worked worked out for whatever reason. 
In another instance, he whipped a boy so violently on both sides of his body, Fish eventually let him go, but his genitals were bleeding so badly that um, Albert got scared and left the city. That's unfortunate. Yep. In the most appalling case outside of Grace Bud's kidnapping, which we'll talk to or talk about in just a little bit, um, was an incident when Fish was about 40-ish and living in St. Louis. Now, remember, these incidents all happened well before 911 was established. So, you know, you had to rely on picking up the phone and, you know, maybe, you know, if you had a phone back then, you know, dialing the operator. operator hey, Flora, then, you're yeah. right in your, <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, think about Andy Griffith or what was it? Was a what show was that? Green Acres. I can't remember what show it was. And they always had the, or maybe it was, um, uh, uh, what is it? The talking horse, Mr. Ed, Mr. Ed. Yeah. Um, I didn't, um, I don't know, but yeah, they always, you know, you had the old plug it into the operator switch and then you're dialing up an operator. Hey, give me the cops. So yeah, it, I can't imagine how, you know, people in danger, how shit worked back then. But, um, so you had this kid named Kedden. Um, he was a slow-witted boy who looked younger than his 19 years. And he bummed his way all the way to St. Louis from um, the south on a banana train. And during the trip, he engaged in sex with six black men that shared the same boxcar with him. So I, I guess they were having a good time. I, I don't know what you call that. But Fish somehow picks up the boy who was covered in lice and took him back to his house, stripped all the hair off his body. And then for two weeks, the two of them carried on all kinds of mutual sadistic, um, misogynistic activities. Um, Fish drank the boy's urine, ate his feces, and then forced the other one to, you know, each other and drink those things too. So it's, they just took turns. The games between the two escalated and Fish cut the boy's ass with a razor blade and then, you know, attempted to drink his blood like a fucking vampire. Eventually, Fish tied the boy up, stimulated him to erection and began to cut off his penis with a pair of scissors. But before he could finish... Fish had a change of heart. The boy had such an agonized look that Fish just couldn't finish. He ended up dressing the wound and left a $10 bill on the bed and ran to another city. So, I, I, I cannot imagine any of these activities, um, much less having your penis cut off. <laughs> right. I mean... No, 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 no. Started. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so now you just have like a flap. Like, how does that? I don't know. Anyway. So on other occasions, uh, Albert would take flowers, roses, and inserted the roses into his penis. Well, that took a turn. Yep. Mm-hmm. Didn't see that, <clears throat> did you? He'd then stand in front just of the you mirror. Think you ha- There's nothing you can hear. I've heard it all. Yeah. You come on uh, here and talk about inserting <laughs> roses and flowers into a penis. So, yeah, that. Somebody had to do it. First. Right. Well, he's inserting them and standing in front of the mirror to look at himself. And when I read that and when I think about that, the Visual. only. 
Yeah, but do you know what movie scene I'm thinking about? What? No. The guy from Silence of the Lambs. Oh, would you fuck me? Yeah, I'd fuck me. And he's in, but yeah, and he's in like the clothing and he's got a flower. Or does he have flower in his mouth or something? I can't remember, but yeah. And he's standing there going, I'd fuck me. I'd, you'd fuck me. <laughs> and I, I want to vomit thinking about it. So, um, anyway, so yeah, he would stand there with a penis hanging out of his, I mean, a flower hanging out uh, of his yeah, penis. Sorry about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he would get set sexual gratification from that and then eat the roses. So once again, it took a turn. It just keeps taking these right turns. <laughs> anyway, and, um, while fish was married several times. He also practiced his abnormal sexual habits with those women as well, because he only chose women who were aware of his sexual interests, which one would think is, you know, okay, you've got somebody who's as kinky as you are. That's great. Um, but he chose a lot younger women. So his first wife was 19 while he was in his 30s. He was just unable to have a mature relationship. And really, just I don't think he knew how real love worked. Yeah. Um, so once Albert hit 55, his fetishes took an even darker turn. Um, so if the roses, you know, up the penis hole weren't enough or eating feces, um, he became obsessed with castrating and killing young boys as a form of penance for his own sins. Fish declared he was a very religious man. So he would talk about how he was Episcopalian and he was, he claimed to be very religious. Uh, when he was young, he had actually dreamed of becoming a minister, but obviously that didn't work out. Um, his religious mania accounted for his practice of inserting needles into his body. He would not only achieve gratification from torturing himself. That way, he also achieved a sexual climax during these episodes as well. Fish explained that he did this to himself in response to his idea that God wanted him to punish himself so as to atone for all these sins he had committed. So I, I don't know how the sexual part comes into play, but it's always a very common thread in everything that he's you know doing. Um, there were many needles that were stuck between his testicles and his anus. And they had found, um, there's an x-ray, actually, if you look up Albert Fish x-ray. And it's going to show you there's like 20-some-odd needles that are stuck in between, like in his groin, in between his anus and his balls. Mm. Um, and there were many times where he tried to insert them into his testicles. Um, but the pain was so unbearable, he had to quit. So um, these incidents were often observed by Fish's children, which, I mean, imagine walking in on your dad on, uh, you know. But, um, yes, I mean, the man had six children. I think he's, I don't know, yeah, he's gross. Albert Jr., Anna, Eugene, Gertrude, Henry, and John. Sadly, uh, Albert's wife decided she wasn't the motherly or wifely kind, um, at least to Albert, and left Albert and their children. And he he had to take care of, you know, all six children. And so, 
I mean, that's six kids, uh, and I think it was like 1917, so it wasn't, I mean, he was somewhat of age to take care of them, but I mean, still. Um, And he reportedly was a decent father, Um, and I don't know. He would say he's a decent father. Well, no, I mean, it was reportedly by other people. Like, I mean, his, but mind you, he had a couple people that, you know, had to go to the mental institution. People, so. Yeah, I know, right? Um, And he was, I mean, as we'll see, I mean, my ultimate diagnosis of this man is he's just psychotic. You know, we go back to the, was he born evil or is he made that way? Or, yeah, no, he was born fucked up. So we know Albert is off his rocker a little bit. Um, And I want to dive a little bit into all the crimes that he's committed um, and what's going to build up to the, you know, his downfall. So in 1903, Albert was arrested for grand larceny and was incarcerated in Sing Sing prison where he regularly had sex with inmates. I mean, he may have enjoyed that. I I think he did. But um, on July 11, 1924, Fish found eight-year-old Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' farm on Staten Island, New York. He offered her money to come and help him look for rhubarb. Now, I'm sorry, but if anybody asks me to look for rhubarb, I'm going to tell you to suck it. Now, puppies, yes. Kittens, yes. But hey, little girl, come help me look for rhubarb. (laughs) Shows the times. Yeah. Well, she was about to leave the farm when her mother chased Fish away. Fish left but returned later to the Kills Barn where he tried to sleep but was discovered by Beatrice's father and then was forced to leave. Once again, nobody's calling cops. For some reason. Well, three days later, in July of 1924, Fish killed eight-year-old Francis McDonald. And he was also on Staten Island. Francis had been playing by himself all morning on July 14th in his front yard. Um, And it had been around 2 p.m. where his mother, Anna McDowell, Donald, saw the elderly man walking down the street making nervous motions with his hands. Later that afternoon, the stranger reappeared, but by the time, you know, that happened, Anna had gone into the house with her infant daughter, and Francis, um, accompanied by his younger brother, Albert, had gone off to join some children in the street to play catch. And as they were playing catch, they noticed the elderly man standing a short distance away, and he was beckoning them to, you know, come on over. Well, Francis, being a kid you know, wandered over to the man um, who at this point, it's, you know, we all know it's Albert, right? Um, To see what he wanted while the other children turned their attention back to the game. Well, a few moments later, uh, Francis and Albert were gone. Well, by the next morning, a massive search was underway throughout Staten Island. It was a group of Boy Scouts who ultimately found the missing boy while passing through a clump of trees in um, Charlton Woods, where a lot of kids used to play. Yeah. The body was concealed under a pile of branches and leaves. His shorts, shoes, underpants had all been violently ripped from his body. He had been atrociously assaulted, is what the papers said, and then strangled with his own suspenders so tightly around his neck that they seem embedded in his flesh. And so, I mean, this is a little boy. He's, yeah. you know, eight years old, seven years old, and he's just playing in his damn front yard, and you've got some piece of shit coming to snatch him up. 
Well, Anna McDonald stuck to her story that she knew exactly what the killer looked like because she had seen him shuffling down the street that afternoon. Well, she just knew that it was the old man who was now being dubbed the gray man. And he was ultimately responsible for killing her son. Um, Because she had given a physical description saying, you know, he's got this thick mustache, he's hunched over, he's older, you know, and he's just kind of shuffling, really, down the street. And he looked, his complexion was kind of gray. Well, sadly, though, the case grew really cold and, um, you know, as did, you know, all the papers saying the gray man was about. Well, then in 1927, he reemerged. Two boys, uh, Billy Gaffney, who was four, and Billy Beaton was three. They were playing in their apartment complex when they suddenly disappeared from their parents. After a frantic search, Mr. Beaton found his son standing on the ladder leading to the roof. Well, when Mr. Beaton asked where the other Billy was, um, his son said, you know, they were on the roof to see chimneys and steamboats. So, you know, imagine being on the roof of this apartment. Somebody took them up there. I don't know who. Yeah. Well, when asked where Billy Gaffney was, um, you know, Billy, the son, replied that the boogeyman had took him. So there, there we go where the boogeyman come, came from. Well, the police were baffled. The Gaffneys were very poor. They had no money to their name. And you have to remember, it's 1927 And the U.S. is on the verge of the Great Depression. Um, Generally, if children were going to be kidnapped, taken from their home, it was, you know, for either some type of monetary game or notoriety. Well, nappers were looking to extort the extremely rich. And that just was not the case here. The the Gaffneys were, were very poor. The police were thinking maybe the kid had fallen off the roof or left the roof to go explore some nearby factory and, you know, got stuck inside, just, you know, somewhere he's fallen and hurt. Well, there could have been a million explanations, but kidnapping just didn't make sense. And just as they they had with Francis, massive amounts of people came out to look for Billy. Um, But there was just no trace of Billy anywhere. And the letters started coming to the home of the Gaffneys. So some letters were hopeful and, you know, uplifting while some claimed to have Billy. Because you always have those crazies, right? And that's even today. It's just, you know, of the times where instead of people calling, confessing to murdering somebody, they're writing a letter. Because that's what you did. Well, of course, you know, the police did what they could to track down whatever leads they had. Um, Nothing was just panning out. And there was really nothing worth interest. Now, Billy Beaton provided a description of the so-called boogeyman. He was thin, old man with gray hairs growing on his upper lip. And that's what he said. Being three years old, you know, that's his description. Right, right. Well, at the time, the police felt like kidnapping just didn't make sense. So they were hesitant to believe the story of a three-year-old. Well, I mean, think about it. You can't trust entirely what they say. But, I mean, I, I get that it would be hard for him to come up with that explanation of a man with hairs on his upper lip. Um, but just a, years, just a few years before, you know, remember a thin 
old man with gray mustache snatched, yeah. sexually assaulted, and killed Francis McDonald. So, but the police aren't putting two and two together at this point. So after weeks of false hopes, tips that lead nowhere, they finally get a tip from a trolley car conductor who stepped up to his account of February the 11th. According to the conductor, an elderly man with a thick gray mustache who was with a small boy. And the boy's like crying the entire trip. He's just, you know, boohooing because, again, you're, you know, a small kid. And who the hell wants to be with this old man? Well, before getting off, the man asked the conductor where he could catch a ferry to Staten Island. Instead of following the directions for the from the conductor, the man went to the the opposite way with the boy in tow screaming all the way down the street. And it wasn't until years later that Fish would actually admit to killing Billy. But it, now it's 1928, and a young man by the name of Edward Budd put an ad in New York World, which is a newspaper, looking to spread his wings and leave the cramped apartment he shared in with his family in Manhattan. The ad was simple. It said, quote, young man 18 wishes position in country, period. And then it provided the boy's address as well, which was 406 West 15th Street. It was on May I mean, that's 28th. Just the one ad. It's just, <laughs> it is. It is literally just a one ad. He was just wanting to get the hell out of his parents' apartment. Well, it was around 3.30 on May 28th, 1928, when there was a knock at the Bud's family apartment door. Delia Bud, which is Edward's mother, and that's the boy who put, you know, his ad out there, opened the, bo- opened the door and a little old man with a gray mustache and tweed suit stood with a hat. The man introduced himself as Frank Howard and wanted to extend an opportunity to Edward as he had read his ad in the paper and he, he knew he was looking for work. Well, Delia lets the man in and has her youngest daughter grab her brother. His name and nickname Eddie comes back to the apartment and drags along his friend Willie Corman who is also looking for work and sits down with Frank to talk. Well, Frank says he's worked as an interior decorator in Washington, D.C. and has done very well for himself. He had a good marriage and had six wonderful children. Well, then his eyesight began to fail. And so he took his all the money he had and he purchased a nice little farm in a little town called Farmingdale which is in Long, on Long Island. His wife, who hated the country, um, and he, she abandoned him within a year of moving, left him to care for all the children. So he had been both the mother and father for nearly a dozen years, and he said, you know, years were tough, but they got through it. And he even mentioned that one of his sons is a West Point cadet. So he's trying to prove to everyone he's like this stand-up Yep, upstanding citizen. He then tells Edward he needs a strong pair of hands to work on the farm, to which Edward jumps at the chance and then asks, you know, Frank if his friend Willie could come along. Well, Frank agrees and tells them that he has a business engagement he has to attend to in New Jersey, but he'd be back on Saturday afternoon to drive them both out to Farming Tail. Mm. Well, the boys obviously are uber excited, and they're patiently awaiting Frank's return to the apartment to pick them up. The day wears on, but there's no sign of Frank until late in the afternoon, someone finally comes to the door. 
Well, it's a Western Union delivery boy who hands Eddie a message. The message was written or handwritten and said, quote, been over in Jersey, period, call in the morning, end quote. And then it was signed by none other than Frank Howard. Well, meanwhile, you know, quote unquote, Frank Howard yeah. is running errands in preparation for the boys. His first order of business has been shopping. So he goes to a hawk shop called Sobel's and he buys three of the most essential items. A butcher's knife, a meat cleaver, and a small handsaw, and then wrap them in canvas. Well, on Sunday 6-3, which is June 3rd, around 10.30 in the morning, Frank finally showed back up at the Bud's apartment. On the way to their apartment, he made several stops. First, he went to a small German delicatessen and filled a pail he was carrying with fresh pot cheese. Now, I don't know what the fuck pot cheese is, but the thought of cheese in a pot kind of makes me a little sick. And I love cheese. Yeah, I do too. So the only thing I can think of is like melted Velveeta in a pot, and I just want to vomit. So, Carrie, while you... Oh, you've got it. What is it? Pot cheese is a type of soft, crumbly, unaged cheese. It's very simple to make and highly versatile. It looks like cottage cheese to me. Pot oh, okay. cheese is in the midway stage between cottage cheese and farmer's cheese. I'm sorry, what's farmer's cheese? All right, and your cheese, all right. You need to continue, Miss Cheese Lover. Is it? Just go ahead. Farmer's <laughs> cheese being like goat cheese? It's, it is. It's like really soft, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. But do you, why would, I mean. It's so good. Yeah, okay, yeah, I've had that. All right. So good. All right, anyway. But yeah, pot cheese. Yeah, tune in next week when we talk about cheddar. <laughs> so anyway, um, he has this pail of cheese. And then he goes across the street. He stopped at a fruit and vegetable stand. He purchased a small carton of strawberries there. Lastly, he stops at a newspaper stand a block away from the Bud's apartment and asks the boy running the stand if he could leave his canvas bundle, canvas bundle um, with him for an hour or so. Now, if I'm the newsstand boy, I'm going to look at this canvas bundle and be like, sure, but then I'm going to peek. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is all a weird movie, but anyway... Well, the kid agrees, takes the canvas bundle. Well, when he arrives at the Buzz apartment, he is greeted by Delia and her husband, Albert. Everybody's fucking name is Albert. Yeah. Well, he hands the cheese and the strawberries to their younger daughter, Beatrice, who tells the family that those products came directly from his farm. Which, I mean, give me a break. We all know that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> so, then Frank said he hoped the boys weren't too disappointed in, you know, him not being able to leave or come and get them yesterday. And saying that he was in New Jersey buying horses, which we all know is also bullshit. He then asked Mr. Bud a very strange question. He says, that message I sent, do you know if the boy threw it away? Well, Mr. Bud is like, nah, it's over here on the mantelpiece. Well, Frank goes over to the mantelpiece, picks it up, looks at it, and slides it into his pocket. Which is very kind of weird. Yeah. But nobody thought anything of it, but they will later. Well, they then all settle around the kitchen table to eat this pot cheese and strawberries. Um, Frank brought them. And in walks a little girl, and her name is Grace Bud. 
And she is the Bud's eight-year-old daughter. Now, Grace is a very, very pretty. She's got big, dark eyes, pretty brown hair, and she's got it shaped into like a bob and just a very sweet smile. So if you look her up, she's super cute and you want to squish her. Well, Frank is taken aback by her beauty and literally just stops eating and stares at her. He then motions for her to come over to him and pats his leg for her to sit down. Now, I know this is the, you know, 21st century, right? Back then, clearly, it's okay for some strange man to pat his leg to have some, you know, poor little unsuspecting girl to sit down on it. Well, Delia explains to Grace who Frank is and tells her to go say hello. She's saying, you know, as a mother, I would say, well, you know, say hello to such and such. Frank then begins to tell her how pretty she is, and he slips his hand down the girl's flank, you know, and then kind of nudges her butt to sit down on his lap, which Mm -hmm. she does. Well, she's obviously a little bit uncomfortable, but he tells her he wants to see how good of a counter she is. And he pulls a wad of bills out of his pocket along with some coins. Well, she, you know, obliges him. She's counting one, two, three, whatever. And Frank, you know, says, oh, what a good job. It ends up being like $92.50. So then he says, oh, here's 50 cents. Go out and buy some candy for you and your other sister, Beatrice. So she hops along. Well, meanwhile, Eddie and his friend Willie show up, ready to leave for the farm. When Frank speaks up and says he's not going to take the boys to the job at the moment. He tells them he received a letter from his sister yesterday, and she is throwing a birthday party for one of her children, and he's obliged to go. He then gives the boys each some money, like two bucks, tells them to go to the movies or something, and then he'll pick them up in the morning. Well, Frank then says, well, you know what? I got the greatest idea. Um, Why doesn't Grace come with me? to my niece's birthday party. It's going to be a lot of fun, and there's going to be lots of children and games. Well, I know (laughs) if this happened to me as the mother, I'd be like, fuck you, no. Yeah. (laughs) But times were different. And this man, mind you, had come over. He looked well-dressed, you know, and, and he's offered the boys a job. He had pulled out this wad of bills, you know, he's, seems legit. he seems legit. Well, Mrs. Bud wasn't so sure about letting her daughter go. But again, man seemed harmless. And it would be good for Grace to get out because she stayed inside a lot, apparently. Well, Mr. Bud thought it was the most fantastic of ideas, probably because he's like, fuck, there's too many kids in this damn apartment. Get them the fuck out. (laughs) So he pressured his wife to let Grace go with the old man. Well, Frank told them without hesitation when asked where his sister lived that she lived in a nice building on 137th Street at Columbus Avenue. Sadly, what the Buds did not know is that that address doesn't exist because Columbus um, Avenue ends at 110th Street. Yeah. So, dun, dun, dun. Well, Frank has given them a non-existent address. And obviously, that's too late because Frank and Grace left with, you know, her wearing a little fur trim collar coat 
and cuffs and had a little pink fake rose pinned on the lapel. So Miss Bud follows the pair out the front stoop of the apartment building until they disappeared around the corner. Well, then they stopped at the newsstand so Frank could retrieve his canvas package, which he dubbed as his implements of hell. And he left, um, you know, he had left that with the boy working the stand. So he stopped by, picks it up, and off they go. Well, early the next morning, the Buds sent their son Edward over to the police station to report Grace missing because obviously she's not back yet. Well, a short time later, uh, Lieutenant Samuel Dribben detected Detective Jerry Maher and James McGee and James Murphy arrived at the apartment where they questioned Mr. and Mrs. Bud about Frank Howard. It was then that Lieutenant Drubbin shared with them that there was no such address as 137th Street in Columbus, to which I would have shit my pants at that point in time, yeah. and I, I don't know what I would have done. Lost my fucking shit. Well, police officers immediately treated this situation as an abduction and went searching for any sign of the two. They went through rooftops, alleyways, empty lots, houses, movie theaters, etc., but there was no trace of either one of them. At the same time, you had detectives traveling to Farmingdale, Long Island, in an attempt to locate the farm supposedly owned by Frank, but they obviously had no luck because it also didn't exist. And just as with the Billy Gaffney case, the Buds started receiving crank letters about Grace's whereabouts. News outlets began running full missing person flyers, which obviously, you know, you got to give your address. I mean, that's, you gave all that information when you were yeah, back in 1927 or so you're, you're going to have crazies come up out of the woodwork regardless. Well, Police did, however, get a few leads thanks to a response to a plea in the paper asking for information about Howard's telegram that was sent to the boys telling, you know, them that he'd pick them up in the morning um, because he was in New Jersey. So they make this plea to any telegraphers, please help us if you knew anybody that placed a telegram with this information. Well, they're able to lo locate where the telegram was sent from and through and thought that the area around where it was purchased was likely where Howard lived and kind of staked out the area. But, you know, they also, um, nothing came of that, obviously. There's, there's nothing that's going to come of that because that's not where he lived. But what they did get was a copy of the handwritten message, which would prove to be beneficial and help prove Albert's guilt later. But it was the telegraph, a copy of the message that they, he had sent the boys, um, saying he's not going to pick them up until later. Well, meanwhile, the buds are receiving letters from all kinds of crazies. You know, you know, they have information where Grace is, one thing that they had had her, and she wasn't homesick or anything, and that they would arrange a visit between her and her parents in the next coming weeks, which isn't that nice. Yeah. <laughs> As time drags on, um, there's little to no new information coming in, and police were unable to locate Howard, this Howard guy, um, during their stakeout. And the case started growing cold. Well, by the time 1928, it's July, comes to a close, the disappearance of Grace Bud had fallen off the front page. 
The police had arrived at several suspects that aligned with the description of Frank Howard, and there was some evidence that seemed questionable with some of these guys. Um, but in the end, neither suspect was ultimately the, the kidnapper. And um, they put a new detective... Um, his name is Detective King, and this guy is bound and determined to catch the perpetrator because he is he feels that this man has probably committed other crimes. They just haven't caught him. Well, it was two years after Grace's abduction that on December 15, 1930, an old man with a gray mustache who had been arrested earlier for sending non-mailable matters, and that's a quote, non-mailable matters, um, through the U.S. Post Office, was committed to a 10-day observation period at the Bellevue Hospital. And this man was none other than Albert Fish. In these letters, Fish claimed, and I'm going to, this is just a warning. This is seriously disgusting, so I'm warning you now. <laughs> if you want to skip over the, like the next 15 seconds, go right ahead, maybe, I don't know. It may take me longer, a minute, because it's going to be gross. But anyway. So, um, this guy, Fish, claims to be a Hollywood producer, ready to offer large sums of money to women willing to perform certain services either for himself or at times for a fictitious teenage son that he called Bobby. The letters were absolutely disgusting. They featured all of Fish's six fantasies. He wrote in one, quote, I wish you could see me now. I am sitting... In a chair naked. The pain is across my back, just over my behind. When you strip me naked, you will see a most perfect form. Yours, yours, sweet honey of my heart. I can taste your sweet piss and sweet shit. You must pee pee in a glass and I shall drink every drop of it as you watch me. Tell me when you want to do number two. <laughs> I just have to laugh for a second. I'm ready for you to finish this. I want to hear the whole thing before I comment. <laughs> oh, my God. I will take you over my knees, pull up your clothes, take down your drawers, and hold my mouth to your sweet honey fat ass and eat your sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot. This is how they do it in Hollywood. End <laughs> oh quote. <my> God. <laughs> I got to chill. You're... I mean, when you, you say sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot, you know what I'm thinking of, right? Fresh and hot, Krispy Kreme fucking donuts. I'm That's the only like thing. Chocolate swirl coming out of an ice cream maker. So I it's ruined, forever ruined ice cream for me. Thank you, Mr. Fish. Thank you. I, I, all I see is the Krispy Kreme, you know, the sign in the window of the Krispy Kreme and it says fresh and hot. I mean, fuck that going forward. Ugh. Okay. All right. Well, in September, Fish has mailed one of these well-written letters to a, prof a professional housekeeper who immediately, thank God, turns it over to the police. Fish has signed the letter Robert Fisk and has included a return address and hope that this, you know, woman would respond. It took no time at all for police to locate Albert and determine that he was the Arthur, Arthur, author. Excuse me. They arrested him and determined he needed to spend some time in the hospital to figure out what possessed <laughs> someone to write such a fucking gross Fair letter. Statement. The doctor immediately determined that the cause was dementia and he was, you know, forced to stay there for 30 days at Bellevue. 
Well, at the age of 60, he's wanting to leave because he had just turned 60 in this hospital. Albert contacts his daughter, Anna, which they called her Annie, to reach out to Dr. Gregory, who is the man who diagnosed him with dementia, and ask him to discharge him and send him back to court because he's done with his shit. Well, shortly afterward, Albert gets his wish, and he was discharged and put on probation into the custody of his daughter, Anna. Well, we're going to fast forward to midsummer 1934. Albert Fish Jr., who was 35 at the time, returns home early to the apartment he shared with his father, Albert Sr. Well, Albert Sr. was usually home during the day, um, but today when younger Albert returned home, he heard some really strange noises coming from the inside of the apartment. And not from his father's room where he would assume that they would be coming from if there were any noises, but they were coming from his own. Well, he peers into the room and found that the window shades had been drawn, but there was enough light to see that the old man was standing in the center of the room, completely nude, stroking his swollen member with one hand, while with the other, he reached behind and smacked himself with a nail-studded wooden paddle. He'd jump and cry out in pain with every blow. And his skin was soaked with sweat and his face looked almost as red as his raw and bloody ass. So we're talking some serious masochistic shit. Like this guy is completely fucked up. Well, for Albert Jr., the paddle bit he had already known about um, for at least five years because... He had told his son that he used the paddle to, you know, uh, basically torture himself for things that he had done wrong. Um, And the other business of, you know, of the two coming together, I guess, he didn't he didn't know how to grasp. He just didn't know how to wrap his mind around it. Well, the old man explained that when he gets feelings that come over him, he's got to use the paddles on himself as a method of torture. In addition to Albert's odd behavior, though, Albert Jr. started to observe his father's ferocious cravings for raw meat, which seemed to come upon him only at a certain time of the month, which is when the moon was full. Hence, I'm going to go back to the very beginning of the episode where we talked about the moon maniac. So... Yeah, that came from that, I guess. Well, all the while, no one knew really what was going on with Albert Fish's, a.k.a. Frank Howard's psyche. Grace Budd was monopolizing his thoughts and dreams at this point. He could see her final cry as vividly as it were yesterday. He would wake up in a puddle of sweat, sweat, heart racing, God's own words ringing in his ears, demanding atonement, modification of the flesh. He would leap from his wet bed, strip to his skin, and grab his needles and thimble and then squat. Reach under, find the piece between his balls and his anus, and shove the needles all the way in, hearing voices inside his head screaming, O ye daughter of Babylon. So it was shortly after when on November 11th, 1934, that Delia Budd received a letter that left her beside herself with concern and disgust. Now, I'm going to read it verbatim, so bear with me. It's, it's a little wordy, but it's, 
well worth the hear, I guess, if, I mean, you tuned into this, so <laughs> let's be honest. My dear Miss Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped a deck hand of the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. He sailed from San Francisco for Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine. There was famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe on the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, head, bones, and guts. Except head, sorry, bones and guts. He had roasted in the oven, in parentheses, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next. Went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, near right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester. I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death and then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. Is that not... That's sick. Some heavy fucking shit. So, and I have no doubt in my mind that's exactly what he did to her. Yep. So, by 1030... That same morning, Detective King had it had that letter in his position, possession, and he then compared it to the handwriting of the infamous Western Union telegram that, you know, quote-unquote, Frank Howard had sent years earlier, saying he was in New Jersey and would pick up the boys the next morning. Well, surprise, 
the handwritings were a match. In the end, it wasn't the letter itself that led to Albert's capture. Imprinted on the back flap of the envelope was a small hexagonal emblem with a circle in the middle with letters like all around the corners that spelled out the initials NYPCBA. The sender of the letter had taken a pen to the top line, obscuring the street number with the ink, but left the words below it, which said New York City. The guy didn't even put any effort in trying to cover up the emblem itself. <laughs> the detective was able to easily make out the scratched out street address, which was 627 Lexington Avenue. Well, he didn't have, uh, you know, he wasn't schooled. Well, yeah. And he, I mean, he was, again, psych, there was some psycho, or psycho craziness going on. Well, heading to the New York Private Chauffeur Benevolent Association, which is what the acronym stood for. He asked the president there if he had ever heard of a man named Frank Howard. After examining all the personnel files, it was determined that Frank Howard was never a member of the association. So an emergency meeting was called where Detective King reviewed the facts of the case and provided a description of Frank Howard in hopes that somebody knew something. Well, after the meeting, a man named Lee Skiwanski uh, approaches King and confesses to having stole a few sheets of stationery and some envelopes from the office. And he had taken them back home where he was living at the time, which was located at 200 East 52nd Street in room number seven. He also mentioned that the, he only ended up using one of those of the two letterhead envelopes. So there was still one missing. The other remained on a wooden shelf above his bed. And as far as he knew, it was still there when he moved out five months earlier. It was only later that Albert was, cap you know, when Albert was captured, that police realized that Albert went looking for something in his room to kill a roach with. Yeah. And he saw the leftover envelope that Lee had left and grabbed it and decided to use that envelope to mail to Mrs. Butt. So really, it was like a roach mm -hmm. that helped solve a fucking case. Yeah. How crazy is that? Well, Detective King... Everything's got a purpose. Oh, I know. Detective King goes to the address and talks with the landlady, which her name is Frida Schneider, who, based off the physical description King provided, said it sounded a lot like this guy named Albert H. Fish. But he had checked out a few days earlier on November 11th. So remember, he writes the letter, that letter and mails it and then moves out the same day because that's what he does. Well, so beginning on November 14th, King sets up a stakeout waiting for Fish to pick up his check because his son is sending or sending him a $25 check every month from his job because his son lives in North Carolina. Well, he hadn't picked it up this month and he had moved out. Well, he knew it or the landlady knew eventually he's going to come back looking for that check. Yeah. So the police are sitting there waiting. Well, then on December 13th, which is days later. We're talking November of the 11th. And uh, King had disbound, disbanded the stakeout because from November 11th until December the 12th, nothing's happening. So he's like, fuck it. We're not going to find anything. Well, on the 13th, Frida calls him up and says, hey, I'm going to let you know that Albert actually showed up inquiring about his check. Well, King rushes over to the boarding house and called his name as he's walking in the room. Are you Albert H. Fish? Cool. Well, at that moment, Albert sticks his right thumb and forefinger into his vest pocket. 
because he's got some, you know, scrubby suit on. And it looks like he's reaching for a watch, you know, like a pocket watch. Well, instead of a watch, he pulls out a razor blade, which he held straight out in front of himself as King is, like, approaching him. Which, I mean, that gives you some clue of his delusion, right? (laughs) Like, what's that going to do? Well, anyway, he gets arrested. Well, now that he's captured, Fish, he's being questioned for Grace's murder. Well, he denies ever being at the Bud's home or even meeting Grace. But after some time... You know, King's pumping him for information. Hey, I, you know, all I got to do is bring in the Bud family to identify you, or I bring the Western Union guy in where you sent that, you know, telegram. We know it's you. Well, he finally says, okay, it's me. And, you know, from the all intents and purposes, this guy is, he doesn't look like a killer. He does. I mean, if you look him up, he looks a little scary, but he's five foot nothing. He's five feet tall and 130 pounds at the most. And that's soaking wet with clothes on. I mean, he is a very tiny guy. And to think that he... Yeah, he's little. To have done something like that is unimaginable. It's, it's hard to wrap your brain around. So Fish confesses, you know, to having a bloodthirst in the summer of 1928. And it just became too much. And he had this, you know, overwhelming need to kill. So he later provides additional detail on the murder of Grace um, and eventually leads detectives to her body. She had been dismembered with his head detached from her neck and her torso separate from her legs, um, close to a stump in the woods behind an abandoned house, um, which it, it was called the Wisteria Cottage. Um, which is where the Wisteria werewolf came from. So so her murder, Grace's murder, um, almost didn't come to be. The pair had taken a ride on a trolley car, and Albert, remember, was carrying his implements of hell under his arm. Um, and when they got off at their stop, Albert jumped up and out of the car, and Grace was falling behind a little bit, and she noticed that the canvas bundle you know, Frank had been carrying was still sitting in seat. And so it could have, you know, she could have jumped off the train and off they went and he had nothing to kill her with. Well, she was all too eager to help because she's an eight year old little girl and wanted to let him know that, Hey, you know, Mr. Howard, you left your package to which he's like, Oh shit, grabs it. And then they go. Yeah. So, but Albert was in this whole, you know, religious um, God's will kind of thing. And if God was not um, wanting him to kill this little girl, he would have intervened at that point and not made sure that he got his instruments, which is fucked up. But that was his justification. So um, Fish, Fish did protest that he, you know, never... Um, sexually assaulted or raped Grace. And again, had no reason to kill her other than his bloodthirst and desire to find out what it, you know, human flesh tasted like. And for nine days, he confessed to have, you know, sat and ate Grace and masturbated the entire time in his room. Mm-mm-mm. So while eventually Fish ki- um, did confess to killing Billy Gaffney, as well as Frank- Francis McDonald, Albert was ultimately being charged for Grace's murder. 
Um, and his trial began on March 11th, 1935. It lasted for 10 days. Fish's plea was not guilty by reason of insanity, which I feel like we all knew was coming. Uh, he claimed that he heard voices from God who instructed him to kill children. There were many medical professionals who consulted, um, who were consulted by the court to lend their expert opinions to Fish's condition. Defense attorney James Dempsey wanted to make sure that he established Fish as insane and a psychiatric phenomenon. There were multiple rebuttal witnesses who testified that Fish was abnormal but sane. Many of the experts said that Fish's perversions were, quote, socially, perf socially perfectly all right, end quote. And he was, quote, punishing himself to get sexual gratification, end quote. They agreed that he was not mentally sick and didn't suffer from any psychosis. So in the end, everybody declared him sane. Albert's stepdaughter, Mary Nichols, was also one of the witnesses who testified that he often made her brothers and sisters play games that were sadomasochist in nature, which I don't know what that means. It didn't go into detail, but I can imagine maybe tag wasn't the same as our tag. Yeah. <laughs> the jury declared him to be sane and guilty of first-degree murder on March 25th, 1935. The judge announced a death sentence. He was executed on January 16, 1936 in the electric chair at the Sing Sing prison. His final words were, quote, I don't even know why I'm here, end quote. In the electric chair or on yep. this earth? I don't know. That was just his last words. I guess in my head, if he's psychotic, he doesn't know why the hell he's there. He has no clue. He thought God told him to kill this girl, and so he did. So, he's buried in an unmarked grave in Flushing Cemetery in Flushing, Queens County, um, which is in New York, United States. And that, my friends, is the disgusting story of Albert Fish. Yeah, he's gross. He's um, one of a kind. He's always fascinated me. Anybody that has the balls enough to go eat a kid and then... Um, write the mother to say, hey, I ate your kid. It's a different, that's definitely it's a different. It's different. It's a choice. That's a, he reminds me of the guy I did a while back where they, and I can't remember his name now, the French guy. Oh, and that guy. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. Uh, Mark, Mar, 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 Marcellus. Mar Marcellus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause, yeah. Because he ate. Yeah. Uh, yes. Similar. And it's gross. Looked like him. Yeah. Right? Well, similar. and this is all sexually driven that's what's so crazy is that his perversion was so intense that he combined religion with like he wanted to do the right things but he it was so tightly bound with sexual gratification you know what i mean it's and because he, he wasn't nurtured is clearly you know during the years that he should have been nurtured by a mother he was yeah being oh, yeah. tortured i mean it's very interesting case to say the least. Um, he's always kind of fascinated me. Because it's not like he went and killed a ton of children. But he he did the ones he killed. I mean, he just, yeah. Joaquin. Joaquin Kroll. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that guy was creepy as hell, too. Yeah. yeah. German. Not yeah. French, but yeah, but similar, right? Very similar, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so anyway, that's, that's our story this week. 
Well, it was gross and disgusting, just like we like it. I know. Well, yes. And uh, <laughs> and thanks to uh, the book that helped me uh, with this ep- episode. I can't talk. Um, it was called, um, give me a second here, because I had it pulled up. Um, and it was, I got it on iCloud. Um, isn't it Kindle for iCloud? Yeah. The... Kindle iCloud reader. Yeah, I use that all the time. It's fat. It's fantastic. I'm not doing an ad for them, but it's freaking great. Um, but yeah, it's called Deranged, and it's the shocking true story of America's most fiendish killer by Harold Schrechter. Schrechter. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's it. But anyway, um, so check it out. Check it out. Um. And as always, please go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Give us a five star rating, um, even if you don't like us. Yeah, give us just because we're asking. And a like. Yeah, yeah. Um, like us on Facebook, Twitter, Insta. I think it's been a while since we used Insta, but no. Oh, it's not. Oh, Carrie's the the social um, butterfly. It's so. definitely time consuming. I know it is, but I we appreciate you. Yes, we do. Um, but yeah, so check us out there and uh, go to our website. Send us an email. StatusMacabre at statusmacabre.com. Yes, give us all things. And um, so uh, we'll see you next week when Carrie makes a decision on her uh, episode. <laughs> I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.